listening to Truth To You Radio on truthtoyou.org. That's truth number two, letter you.org. Also available on iTunes. I'm Jono and g'day to everybody who has registered to spy out the land with Keith and myself, Keith Billin, the oh, listeners. There it is. I'm telling you folks, we are we are really, really getting close. I mean, we, by the time you hear this, we're going to have the dates, the itinerary, and we've just got a really exciting announcement that most people don't that aren't going to be aware of, but we'll let him make the announcement. But in the meantime, we are going to be in the land. We're going to have a great time. We've got people that are interested already. We're putting things together. If you're interested, if there's room, you just got to let us know. You can go to hishollowedname.com. You can send a note to Truth To You. You can send up a smoke signal. You can do anything you want to let <laughs> us know. Facebook, it doesn't matter. Send us a personal letter in the mail. Let us know that you're interested in coming in. If there's room, we're going to have you come with us to spy out the land in Israel, 2013, early March and it's going to be a blast. <laughs> it's going to be great. It's going to be great. And uh, But in any case, of course, it is time for the Torah portion with Keith Johnson. Pearls from the Torah portion. Yes. Keith Johnson and Nehemiah Gordon. And uh, thank you, gentlemen, for joining us once again. Hey, it's great to be here, Jono, from Jerusalem. And uh, man, is it hot here. Uh, I kind—I think I know what those Israelites felt, felt like when they were on their travels through the desert. Uh, and the name of the portion, of course, is Masa'e, which means the travels. This is Masa'e B'nai Israel, the, the travels of the children of Israel. So it's Masa'e. Masa'e. Thank you, my friend. Numbers chapter 33, verse 1 to Numbers 36, verse 13. It begins like this. These are the journeys of the children of Israel who went out of the land of Egypt by their armies under the hand of Moses and Aaron. Now, Moses wrote down the starting points of all their journeys and the command of Yehovah. And these are the journeys according to their starting points. They departed from Ramses in the first... One second, Jono. I know, you're gonna, I know we're going to do this and we're going to get to the, the talk about these um, these stages of the journeys. But but again, this is just one thing that's always, it's always been interesting to me. It's kind of, kind of funny to me, but it's, uh, but it's something worth taking just a minute, minute to look at. So it says in, in, in verse 33, verse 1, it says... Um, that when they came out of Egypt by divisions or under the leadership of Moses and Aaron and basically the idea, I think you would get it in your version, Nehemi, I'm sure you would get it in your uh, Hebrew, is that they, they came out sort of, you know, marching like an army. Is that fair to say? That's yeah, how it comes. Well, they, well, well, mine actually says armies. It says they, they, they came out by yours their says armies. armies. Mine, Moses, mine, says, yeah. mine says by division. And Nehemi, okay. what does yours say? So here we're talking about, yeah, so it says, let's see Votam. Uh, yeah. And that actually is the same word as when it, we talk about, you know, the Lord of hosts, which That's in Hebrew is Yehovah Sivaot, and Sivaot okay. means hosts, and, and, and it also means armies. Um, Siva really means a gathering in biblical Hebrew, a gathering of any large number. And so, hence, you know, that's what an army was. It was a gathering of a mass number of people. And then also yeah. Tzava, in, in sometimes is used to refer to the hosts of heaven. That is the um, you know the, the you know myriads of angels that are uh, you know surrounding Yehovah. That mm-hmm. so that's what you know Yehovah Tzavaot refers to both the Tzavaot the the armies you could say or the the masses of Israel and also Tzavaot Shemayim the masses of the um, of the angels. So here's what I love about it though is when they was when yeah. <laughs> and again I, I've always I've always loved this uh, I've loved loved this, uh, this this statement it says that uh, that the, the children of Israel uh, came up out of Egypt and they were like you know armed and ready to go they were they were they were they were prepared mm-hmm. for battle mm-hmm. but then but then Yehovah says but I'm not going to let them fight right now they're just not ready <laughs> so mm-hmm. it's it's like what I what I love about it is you know it's like the 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 parade you know we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna come out. 
we're going to be ready. We're going to look like we're ready. We're going to march like we're ready, but we're not going to fight and mm-hmm. initially. And then when we get to numbers, I mean, certainly they, they, they did fight many times. But in this, this particular passage, it just reminds me of that, that he actually had them ready to fight. Here's how we walk. Here's how we march. But then he didn't have them actually fight in the beginning. He took, mm-hmm. them, took them beyond the place of, of, of battle. And now we can talk yeah. about this. <laughs> well, it, it begins with they, they departed from Ramses. And the, Keith, here we go. The first month, on the 15th day of the first month, uh, on the day after the Passover, the children of Israel went out with boldness in the sight of all the Egyptians, for the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn, whom Jehovah had killed among them. Also, on their gods, Jehovah had executed judgment. Nehemiah. we got to stop, stop there, because that's a key piece of... Yeah, I know Keith has this, uh, what he calls the, the project. He's got the, the video on the calendar, which maybe by the time this is broadcast, um, one of two things may happen. Um, either Keith will actually have the video ready and published for people, or maybe the Messiah will come. And I'm not sure which one is more likely. Uh, <laughs> or but... <laughs> it's even possible that by the time this, uh, this comes out, Nehemiah's book will be ready. Let's see the who's ready. The imaginary book. Right? Yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah, that, and that's uh, shattering the conspiracy of silence. The Hebrew power right. of the priestly blessing unleashed. Unleashed. And Jono came up with that name. Um, awesome. Hallelujah. Uh, anyway, so um, yeah, so uh, <laughs> so, but no, but we got to talk about this because this is majorly important for the whole issue of calendar and time and chronology. Mm. So the children of and, they, and it says and they traveled from Ramses from Ramses uh, mm-hmm. on the first uh, in the first month. And the fifteenth day of the first month, mm-hmm. and it says, the morrow of the Passover, the children of Israel left Egypt with the high hands before all of Egypt. And we have an equation here. It equates two different time frames. The fifteenth day of the first month is equivalent mm-hmm. to Pesach, the morrow of the Passover. There Very clear. Uh, you know, indisputable. I think you can't really deny this. Why is this mm-hmm. important? This is important because there are some people who dispute when the Israelites left Egypt. Some people try to say, "Oh no, the Israelites actually, you know, left." Um, you know, they, they, there's all kinds of different theories. I won't even go into it. But this really becomes important when we go to Joshua chapter five, verse uh, eleven. And I'm actually going to start before verse eleven. I'm going to. Um, start in verse 10. It says, And the children of Israel camped at Gilgal, and they did the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the mm-hmm. evening in the plains of Jericho. Now this is mm-hmm. cool because what we're reading in Numbers, they're in the plains of Moab, the plains of Moab, it, uh, at the Jordan of Jericho. They're on the other side of, uh, of, the, of the Jordan. And here in the book of Joshua, they've now crossed over and they're no longer in the plains of Moab, they're in the plains of Jericho says, and they ate of the produce of the land on the morrow after the Passover, uh, uh, unleavened bread and parched grain on that very day. Now, why is that important? It's important because there's a commandment in Leviticus 23. I'm popping all over the place. I'm sorry, that's people. That's what we love. We, we got to do this. It's good. In Leviticus 23, that's the portion that I opened up when I read from Keith's Torah scroll. And there's a commandment there that you can't eat of the new produce of the land until... The morrow of the Shabbat, and it's talking about the Feast of Unleavened Bread in that context. And what that ends up being is that there's a Sunday, a morrow after the Shabbat, during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at which point the new grain becomes permissible. Now, verse 11 here of Joshua 5 is telling us the Israelites ate that grain. They ate the new grain. 
because they just come into the land. They didn't have any old grain. All they had is what they could pick from the fields that the, that were mm. surrounding them. Basically, they went and pillaged the fields of the Canaanites. Let's be honest here. Sure. Um, so uh, you know, because they were millions of people who had just you know come across the Jordan, they took whatever they wanted to take, and they started eating of this new produce of the land. Now, why does this create a problem? It creates a problem for the rabbis, and that's because they say in Leviticus 23, when it talks about Mimochrata Shabbat, the morrow mm. of the Shabbat, it doesn't mean morrow of the Shabbat. It means the morrow of the first Feast of Unleavened Bread, the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And what that means is every single year, they begin the 50-day count to Shavuot, to Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks, on the 16th day of the first month, or the 16th of Nisan in their terminology. Mm which is the morrow after the first day of unleavened bread. And they say, well, that's a Shabbat, the first day of unleavened bread, even though scripture never calls it a Shabbat. Uh, I, I hope I haven't lost anybody. There's actually a whole uh, study on this. We're still with you. I'll fix it for you. Yeah. has a whole long study on this. Go to karaitecorner.org, karait-corner, corner with a K.org. Um, but basically what, what we're seeing is Leviticus 23 is telling us don't eat the new produce of the land until the morrow after the Shabbat. And here it says they ate the produce of the land on the morrow after the Passover. Now, when we read our verse in Numbers uh, 33, verse 3, in our tar current Torah portion, it explains the morrow after the Passover is equivalent to the 15th day of the Feast of, uh, excuse me, the 15th day of the first month. Now, remember, the rabbis say you can't eat the new produce every single year until the 16th day of the first month. And this actually refutes their position. And there's a really interesting discussion in, in the writings of a rabbi named Ibn Ezra, who was a brilliant rabbi. Um, even though he was a you know oral law rabbinical Jew, but he was a brilliant Bible commentator. And when he came to this verse, he said, "We've you know we we blew it here. <laughs> this is this uncovers us, you know." And he says, "You know, if only we could explain away and say that this was the old produce of the land, even though it doesn't say that and it doesn't make sense mm -hmm. in the context." Well, here's the really interesting thing: uh, if you read in the King James version in Joshua five eleven, what do you find? You find as follows, it says, and they did eat of the old corn of the land of the morrow after the Passover, un unleavened cakes and parched corn in the selfsame day. Now, the word old doesn't appear in the text, doesn't appear in the Hebrew. I, and in I fact, don't, I don't have it in the English either. Well, this is, you're in the New King James, I'm in the Old King James. Uh -huh. Oh, okay, sorry, keep going. So the New King James doesn't have it, but the, uh, the Old King James from 1611 says, uh -huh. and they did eat of the old corn of the land of the morrow the, after the Passover. Now, why, where did they get the word old? They got it from the rabbis who taught them Hebrew. And the rabbis oh, who taught them Hebrew saw this in Ibn Ezra, who was saying, I wish it said old. It doesn't, but I wish it did. And from the wishing it did, it then ended up in the translation from <laughs> the stupid Christians who didn't know any better. Sorry, Keith. <laughs> but they were misled by the rabbis who taught them uh, Hebrew. And they end up with uh, rabbinical wishing has now turned into translation in the King James Version. Um, and the bottom line is it doesn't say that. And that doesn't even make sense in the context. And, and I guarantee uh, you the people who were translating this in the King James Version in you know, the 1600s, they had no idea that they were throwing themselves in the middle of an age-old debate that goes back thousands of years in Judaism between wow. when to begin the 50-day count of, Pe of Pentecost. Um, but that's, you know, I mean, it's amazing. Like, like, you can't blame them that they had this agenda, but someone had the agenda and fed it to them, and they didn't know any better. And they swallowed it. Kate, they well, swallowed it all. The reason I say I'd like to fix it just a little bit is that I think this is one of the reasons why uh, those of us that are stupid Christians, we don't <laughs> get a chance to understand this because, we, because there is such confusion that, that has been uh, passed down through tradition, translation, uh, agenda, 
et cetera. And so one of the things that I really, and, and Jonah, you're going to really appreciate this when you come over to Israel, is that when you get a chance to see for yourself sort of the basics and the idea of God's calendar, it allows you to take a step back. And here's what's happening right now, and this is happening all over the Messianic world, certainly. I don't think most Methodists even care about it, and many Jews don't even have to think about it because the rabbis tell them what to do. I'm talking about traditional rabbinic Judaism. And so a lot of people don't, don't get their hands in the dirt. But in the Messianic movement right now, certainly I think those many that would listen to, 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 this, to this program uh, would say, oh, this is a huge issue. This is big controversy. Yes, because we've got to decide when the beginning is, and we've got this verse, and we've got that verse, and we've got this verse, and we've got that verse. But if you take a step back, kind of like the way we've been taking through the Torah pearls, and you take a step back and you say, okay, here's the beginning of this process where Yehovah speaks unto Moses and Aaron and says, hey, here's the beginning of the month for you, and this is, you know, this is the beginning of the year for you, and you, and you take it from that perspective, it really does come, become much more clear. What Nehemiah just did, which was excellent, is he brought in, okay, here's this dimension, this dimension, and, and, he, uses, and he used verses where if you don't put the whole picture together as we've done through Torah Pearls, you could take one of those verses and say, okay, so therefore, here's what, here's what it means, unless you look at context. And again, why does our, our verse become so important? Because it adds a dimension of clarity on when the beginning of their uh, Passover was and how we count mm-hmm up to the 50 days. And so I just think this is phenomenal. And, and again, the project, on, on, and I call it Time Will Tell, is that, is that time really does end up answering a lot of questions, more questions Amen. than we can even imagine. So I'm looking forward to this. Again, I'll probably be reading uh, Nehemiah's book before this comes out. But when it does come out, it's going to help people not be so confused. Time Will it, Tell, it the video, a weighted video by Keith Johnson. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's called Time Will Tell. Because time will tell if he ever finishes it. Yeah, time will tell. Come <laughs> here. Yeah. Okay, now listen, guys. Now the rest of it, there's a pretty serious uh, geography yeah. lesson going on here in uh, oh, boy, in yeah. the majority of the um, uh, of chapter 33, which would serve the listeners to uh, to grab a map if they can, if they've got a yes, study Bible with a map a or something idea. like that. Certainly well, help you to do to go through it. But Nehemiah, is there anything? Is there anything else there, that you want to? There's wanna... a little bit of a problem with grabbing a map and. <laughs> This brings us back to <laughs> we got to go back to the fourth century A.D. when um, when the, the the mother of the emperor Constantine she came to the land of Israel and she had dreams telling her where different historical sites were, and one of the historical care. sites that she got in the dream was the um, the place where Mount Sinai is supposed to be, and um, and so she put it in, uh, of course, she had to put it within the Roman Empire because she was the mother of the Roman Emperor. And mm. so she put it in what today is called the Sinai Peninsula. It's called the Sinai Peninsula because of her, uh, not the other way around. Um, frankly, back then, all, the, the, all those desert areas and, you know, uh, what today is the Sinai Peninsula and northwestern Saudi Arabia and south, southern Jordan, that was all just called Arabia. And the reason it was called Arabia is that it was at one time ruled by the Nabataeans who were an Arabian tribe. Um, and then became a, essentially a vassal of the Roman Empire and eventually even a province of the Roman Empire. But uh, anyway, so, so she's the one who identified Mount Sinai. Now, I have a very strong connection to her traditional Mount Sinai. I had amazing things happen to me there. But where I really wanted to go was the real Mount Sinai, which is today in northwestern Saudi Arabia in a, in a region that to this day is called Midian, the land of Midian, or, or mm-hmm. actually it's called Madian, which is the... the Arabic pronunciation, but Madian is obviously Midian uh, in Hebrew. And um, so, uh, long story short, 
they didn't, if you look at most of your study Bibles, they have them wandering around this tiny little triangle, this tiny little peninsula called the Sinai Peninsula. But where they really were wandering around was in what today is northwestern Saudi Arabia and southwestern uh, Kingdom of Jordan. That's where they were wandering around. And that actually fits the story perfectly because we have them here. Um, I mean, really, you've got to force the story into this difficult paradigm of the sign of this tiny little peninsula. I mean, three million people wandering around the Sinai Peninsula, you know. Um, and I, w- I actually had a, a, you know, when I was studying archaeology, um, one of the things I learned about is that the archaeologists, um, uh, Israeli archaeologists, uh, went through the Sinai Peninsula with a fine-tooth comb. They combed every inch of that peninsula before Israel gave the Sinai back to to Egypt, uh, and I think that was like in 1982. So before leading up to that, they went through every inch of the Sinai Peninsula looking for archaeological remains. And one of the things that was very noticeable is they didn't find the remains of 3 million people wandering around for 40 years. Now, come on. 3 million people wandering around for 40 years, they're going to leave a lot of garbage. They're going to leave a lot of bones, a lot of human bones, a lot of animal bones, a lot of um, fires and encampments, and they didn't find it. And, of course, what does my professors – what did they conclude? Well, the whole story is a myth. It never happened. There was no such thing as the Israelites leaving Egypt. It's just a fairy tale. Uh, the only problem is they were looking in the wrong place. And if you study this geography carefully, it becomes clear that they actually crossed over. And here's where they got confused. There's two branches of the Red Sea. The western branch is commonly today called the Gulf of Suez. And the eastern mm-hmm. branch is called the Gulf of Aqaba, or Jews call it the Gulf of Eilat. And it's pretty clear to me that they crossed over the Gulf of Aqaba or Elat, that sea, and not the Gulf of Suez. Um, and, and really, to make them cross over the Gulf of Suez, what, what historians have to do, or people who do believe the story, is they've got to have them cross over this tiny little piece. It's like, why didn't they just go around it? It's like some little piece at the edge there. And that's because the Gulf of Suez drops thousands of feet. And even if you split the sea, you couldn't cross it. The Gulf of Aqaba, on the other hand, has a land bridge actually in two locations, one at Nueva and one at Sharm el-Sheikh. And geographically, it sounds much more like they crossed over at Nueva. Um, and what all of this means is that if you look at most of your study Bibles, they're, in the, they're, look, they're locating these places in the wrong place. Now, what gives them the ability to do that is that these are desert oases. And if you go to, like, you know, you ask somebody where Jericho is, well, there's no question where Jericho is because people always mm-hmm. lived in Jericho. It was never forgotten. Jerusalem was always called Jerusalem. But, you know, and so people might have renamed it, but everybody remembered, always remembered it was called Jerusalem. Uh, if you go to a city, I don't know, the city of um, Gidgad or Yotvata, or, which is actually a modern town in southern Israel, but the original Yotvata, well, I mean, it was some desert tribe who maybe came there once in a while for, for water. And those desert tribes were, you know, have moved or were wiped out. And, and we don't know where all of these places are. That's the bottom line. There's a couple of cities here that are unquestionable. And one of them, for example, is in verse 35, where it says Etzion Gaver. Etzion Gaver, we know from other references, was the southern port city of King Solomon. And today, that we call that Elat. Um, and in fact, in the Bible, it's referred to as Elat as well, mm-hmm. uh, in, in one context. So it's actually probably right next to Elat, just east of there or west of there. Um, but Etzion Gaver is a port city on the southern, or on the northern shore, southern shore, whatever, on the dead, on the northern edge of, of the Gulf of, of Elat, in other words, it's mm-hmm. the southern shore of Israel, but it's the northern edge of, of the sea. <laughs> um, sure. So we know that in verse 35. But, for example, you, you want to know where, I don't know, Tachat is or Risa or Livna or any of these other places. 
No one really knows. People have all if kinds of guesses. If you want to know where those places are, if you want to know where those places are, just ask me, and uh, I okay, will well, make Keith them up for you. Keith may know through Revelation, and um, <laughs> I will make them up for you. And we're going there on tour. <laughs> Hallelujah! It's listed I, on the tour. Excellent. Yeah, you guys are going to Saudi Arabia. You may get beheaded. Um, okay, <laughs> but what we can do, what's interesting, is, is point out a few little little quirks of not quirks, but a few little maybe pearls of some of these names, which I think Please. are really interesting. Um, so first of all, I want to point out something that confuses a lot of people, which is we've got three different deserts mentioned in the Torah that they went through. And remember, when we say today desert, we talk about the Sahara Desert. It co- covers thousands of miles. Back then, a desert might be just a little region. And then there's a mountain. And on the other side of the mountain, there's another desert. And they don't call count those as two different regions. Um, so we've got the Desert of Sinai in verse 15. And we've got the Desert of Sin in verse 10. <laughs> Mibav Sin and Mibav Sinai, very similar names, but they're different places. And there's a third place called the Desert of Tzin, or in English it's usually written Zin, Z-I-N. So we've got Tzin, Sin, and Sinai, and they sound very similar, and, and they're near each other. Um, you know, they're somewhere, all of those are somewhere in, you know, northwestern Saudi Arabia, apparently, in, in that area, roughly. Um, so in any event, um, so you've got some really interesting names here. Um, so Aileen, we hear about that in Exodus and, and then they, uh, let's see, um, I mean, we're not going to go through them all, but, uh, all right. So Kivota Ta'ava, the, the graves of, of lust. We read that story in verse 15. Um, and then there's a place called Rimon Paretz in verse 19. And what do we really know about Rimon Paretz? So R- Rimon Paretz is never mentioned anywhere else in the Bible, only in these two verses. And what does it mean? And there's a story there. And how do I know there's a story there? Because Ramon means pomegranate and Paretz means bursting, bursting pomegranate. Believe nice. me, there's a story there. Uh, and I don't know what the story is, but there's, you know, the word bursting is sometimes applied to Yehovah when he, uh, like he bursts forth upon the, the Philistines in the book of Samuel. That's actually in my book. Uh, I talk about that in the book, uh, Shattering the Conspiracy of Silence, the Hebrew Power, the he- uh, Priestly Blessing Unleashed. Um, so, uh, you know, b- uh, bursting, and actually in modern Hebrew, Rimon Paretz would mean exploding grenade, but in <laughs> ancient Hebrew, it meant ex- wow. uh, bursting pomegranate. There's some story there where God burst forth upon the people, something to do with pomegranates, I have no idea what. Then there's Kehelata, um, which is from the word uh, uh, kahal, gathering, something to, do with, something to do with the community. And maybe some of these are some of the ten tests that he re- alludes to. You tested me ten times. And we don't have mm-hmm. all ten stories. Maybe these sure. are, you know, allusions to that. Number twenty-four, verse twenty-four is charada, which means anxiety or trepidation. Why is it called that? There's got to be a story behind that. Makhelot is the gathering or the choirs. Um, tachat in verse twenty-six. I'm not going to tell people what that means because there's children um, okay. listening. Mitka in verse twenty-eight is sweetness. Um, you know, so, so there's something going on here. There's like little stories behind each of these, many of these places, and we don't know what they are. And um, and it isn't really until we get to really until like verse 45 that we hear divon God that we all of a sudden have places that we can identify with much more certainty because those are settled areas that to this day people have always lived on those spots. And you know you can you know divon God to this day is called you know diban and you know same exact word just with an uh-huh. Arabic pronunciation, or Dibon. Um, so the, the places haven't changed their names uh, in the settled areas, but you go out into the desert, and it's really, any, you know, Funon, where is that? I don't know. <laughs> Anybody's guess. Um, so really, up until verse 45, 
you know, that's where people can get creative and they can come in and make up their maps to fit their theologies, you know, and, 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 and back up the tradition of, you know, of Constantine's mother, um, you know, because mm-hmm. and who's to question her, you know, some desert guy who can't, who's illiterate and it's never been recorded the, you know, what, what he calls the name of this place. I mean, there really isn't anyone to question. Um, mm-hmm. so there it is. Very valid. And so they, they, and in, in verse 48, they departed from the mountains of Abarim uh, and Abarim. Abarim and camped in the plains of Moab by the Jordan. Across from Jericho, they camped by the Jordan from Beth Yerishmoth at uh, as far as Abel Acacia Grove in the plains of Moab. What what do you have in the in the Hebrew there? Abel Acacia Grove. It's Avel Shittim. Avel Shittim. Um, and, sh- and Shittim means acacias. So presumably it was it was and there were several cities called Avel or uh, uh, which means morning. Um, and there's Avel Macha and there's Avel Shitim and several others like that. So okay. this one's being identified because it's the one that ha- has the big the Acacia Grove. And and this is where they find themselves. But I just want to jump back to uh, verse 38 if I can, because correct me if I'm wrong, but I think verse 38 and particularly verse 39, it talks about, um, well, in 38, then Aaron the priest went up to Mount Hor at the command of Jehovah and died there in the 40th year after the children of Israel had come out of the land of Egypt on the first day of the 15th month, of the fifth month, sorry, the first day of the fifth month. Now, is this is this new information? It says Aaron yeah, was 123 numbers, years old. Yeah, it says Numbers 2028, 20, after Moses had stripped Aaron of his garments and put them on his son, Aaron died there on the mountaintop. Then Moses and Eleazar came down. What's interesting, and this is another great story, um, and I'm glad you brought this up, Jono, is that if we just read Numbers 20, we could make up a bunch of things. We could say, here's how old he was, this is when he died, this is the time he died. We get to Numbers, the boring book that only talks about numbers, and sure enough, it says right here that it only gives us, and not only it tells us you know, what happened, but it tells us the actual um, age that he was, but what I love about mm-hmm. it is it says exactly when he died. So he died on the first day of the fifth month. And again, it's another example where if you're reading the whole of the Torah, there are, there are pieces that get put together. And I want to stop again and say something regarding the tradition that I come from. Mm. Um, one of the things that really has happened, and I'm not sure if this happens in Judaism, I certainly know that the rabbis uh, have done this where they'll take a part of a verse, an aspect of a verse, and build an entire command around an aspect of a verse, or even at times mm-hmm. misinterpret yeah. To interpret that, and, and you know, I, I won't call them any names, but I will say that it's been convenient for them to do that. Well, in my tradition, many times there's the, the same thing. It, it will take an aspect of a story and then build an entire theology or an entire, um, you know, process of commands, I guess, regarding that. And, and again, what's so cool about the Torah, and I just want to remind people about this again, if you're like Jono, you're an ancient Australian. You're living out in the. You're living out on the. Uh, what, what, what is that called again? What, what, what do they call that the in outback. Australia? Yeah, yeah, in the outback. And and you're and you're you, <laughs> and you, you play and the didgeridoo. Yeah. So so here's. <laughs> let's just use Jono. This is a great. This is a great example. So Jono and his wife and children live out there in the back. That and they're and they're 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 skinning goats and they're they're doing what they're doing and they're battling the the grasshoppers and the and the bees and all these things that Jono does, and 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 then. <laughs> Because that's it. Listen, is it what we do all day? Is that we sit out there skinning coats and battle the grasshoppers? No, no, I'm telling you, this is what you. (laughs) I can't wait to come visit you. But first, you're going to visit us in Israel. But listen. So here's here's what I want to bring up. So imagine this. Jonah is not every day ripping apart the scriptures and ripping apart the Torah, trying to figure out how Numbers thirty matches with Deuteronomy sixteen. He basically has heard the heard the word of God. He's brought his family and he stood and he's listened to it 
once every seven years because guess what? He doesn't have a Torah scroll in his house. He's mm-hmm. got to survive off the land. He can't, he can't hire a rabbi, a, a scribe, to go spend an entire year to, to, to create his own Torah scroll that he can put in his bathroom like the, like the Methodists do with the Bible. You know, They put it in their bathroom for, for casual reading. He gets to hear the Torah once every seven years during Sukkot. And from that reading of the Torah and his children hearing it, he puts the pieces together. So again, mm-hmm. when it was written, was it not written for the Jonos and the Hanis and their children to mm-hmm. hear it and to put the pieces together versus the great scholars like Nehemiah Gordon, who knows every little in and out, who can say this is the verse and that's the verse, and it's awesome that he has that. But the average person didn't, didn't have that same access. So that's why it's so powerful about reading the Torah that way. If we get to that spot where we say, what else do we know about this in Genesis chapter 12? Two words that I love to say, keep reading. We keep reading and we find it in Numbers. We keep reading, we find it in Deuteronomy. And here's what I want to say. Sometimes we keep reading and we don't get the answer. And guess what? Mm -hmm. That's okay too. Because Mm -hmm. what is supposed to be communicated is communicated. So I like for people to take the approach with the Torah if, if, in fact, we believe this is the word of God revealed to, to, to Moses over a period of 40 years that has been given now to us, we keep reading, we see what we can do, we dig, we, we, we search, but in the end, we ask ourselves, what's the message that he has for us? And that's what we, we stick with. Amen. That's what I love. Amen. Okay. You know, what, what, one of the, I want to comment, and, and it seems to me like, I agree with you completely, Keith, and, I, and I, for me, the key point is that, you know, the, the Jonos and the Khanis who were... Uh, you know, skinning goats and and um and and you know and, and wrapping <laughs> wrapping themselves in kangaroo uh, uh, skins. You know that oh. they, you know uh, that kangaroo loincloths that they didn't they didn't need you know to be great Bible scholars because right. they just heard the words and lived by them. The reason exactly. today we've we've got a we've got a you know pull up our Bible program and read scripture many times and, and, you know, connect, make these connections is because what we're trying to do is dig through all the layers that have been put upon scripture. It's, Absolutely. you know, I, the way I look at it is like scripture has become like this barnacle encrusted ship and you've got to dig through all those barnacles and tear them off. And it's layer layers upon layers of the barnacles until you finally get to that pure, beautiful, pristine word, which it, you know, which to, to the ancient Khanis and, and Jonos who were uh, eating kangaroo meat because they didn't know Deuteronomy 14, <laughs> they heard Deuteronomy 14, Leviticus 11, and they said, no more kangaroo. We don't need I a rabbi it. to tell us that. We don't need, you know, uh, to jump through all kinds of theological hoops and, and issues. Mm-hmm. All we do, we hear the word of God and we, and we apply it we'll in wear lives. the kangaroo, no, but we won't it's, eat the kangaroo. It's actually not too far from the truth. <laughs> oh, my goodness. All right. Yeah. Now, verse 50. Now, Yehovah spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you have crossed the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants from the land from before you, destroy all their engraved stones, destroy all their molten images, and demolish their high places. You shall dispossess the inhabitants of the land and dwell in it, for I have given you the land to possess. And you shall divide the land uh, by lot as an inheritance among your families. To the larger you shall give larger inheritance, to the smaller you shall give a smaller inheritance. There everyone's inheritance shall be whatever falls to him by lot. You shall inherit according to the tribes of your fathers. And here is a very interesting verse. But if, Keith, yeah, there it 34, is. Yep. 
uh, verse 55. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall be that those whom you let remain shall be irritants in your eyes and thorns in your side, and they shall harass you in the land where you dwell. Moreover, don't read the last verse. Please don't read the last verse, Jono. Can't we just not read the last verse? No, if you read the last no, this this if you read the last verse, then then, then we're gonna start on that verse. I I want you to hold the last verse, just for one second, if you would. Okay. Uh, okay, I want you to hold the last verse and I want to back up just for a second, because I think that this 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 statement that takes place in, in fifty one, speak to the Israelites and say unto them, When you cross the Jordan into, into Canaan. So first of all, that statement is exciting because again, remember the process that we've been on with uh, pearls from the Torah. We have been in a process where we have been trying to get to this spot when they cross over, when they cross over. And I know we're going to do this again. We're going to get into Deuteronomy. We're going to talk about it. But this is a statement of, of fact. He says when, not if. He says when. It's going to happen. You're going to cross over the Jordan. And I'm sure that when Moses mm-hmm. hears that and the people hear that, they're like, really? <laughs> You're kidding me. When's that going to happen? So, so okay, that's going to happen. It's but almost the like first thing- video. Is that ever going to really happen? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And so it says, so when you, when you cross the Jordan into, the, into, into Canaan, and then it says, drive out the inhabitants of the land before you. And again, we could stop there. But he goes on to just say, just say destroy all of their carved images and their and and their cast idols and demolish all their high places. And I'm just sitting and I'm thinking to myself, okay, we've been 40 years in the desert, and and in in the desert they've had some battles and they've had some personal issues and they've had some they've had some some people that they've had to come against. But it's interesting. Uh, we had the situation with Moab, but I would ask you too this question: How many times did they deal with others, others' images and others' religion religious uh, symbols uh, in their 40 years? We know about the one they created, the golden calf. We know about the serpent, the bronze serpent that, that, was, they, that they created and that became something else later in Scripture. But, but, but what do we know about them actually having to confront the high places or the cast idols that were in the place of their wandering? Hmm. And the reason I want to ask that question while you two do this, and maybe Nehemiah will tap on his computer, I'm not sure. But while that's going on, here's the question. What is the process of the wandering that finally gets you to that place where, you know, and, and I think we get to this in, um, uh, boy, oh, boy, off the top of my head, uh, you've, you've wandered around this, this mountain long enough, now turn north. Um, that's Deuteronomy. Ah, hmm, that's Deuteronomy. But here's the point. Isn't it interesting, you two, that for this 40 years that they're on the wandering, they're not dealing with the theology of other, other <laughs> the other places yet. In other words, he's making them in the desert. He's making them in their wanderings. He's making them in the process. And then when they cross over, he says, now, look, when you get over there, we're going to have to do some uh, theological, uh, some, uh, some, uh, some religious uh, house cleaning of others. Mm. And, and, you know, it just, I just get this image, you guys, that, that the process that they've been in for that 40 years is for them is to build them up. It's like I said earlier, when they came up out of Egypt, they were armed for war, but they weren't ready to fight. When they finally were ready to fight, they fought. Then when they fought, they had the ability to win. And then when they won, they then dealt with internal issues. They started grumbling. And then when they grumbled, there was, there was teaching. There were plagues. There were all these things to build this people. And then he says, now you're ready to go. When you cross over, now we're going to have to do some uh, cleaning out of some other stuff. And I just think that that's a really cool image because... Because it, it isn't good enough 
for them to cross the land and say, okay, we've made it. We're here. Boy, let's sit back and relax. This is great. No, they've got high places over there. They've got carved images over there. Mm -hmm. And for us, if I can say this, and I'm waxing on longer than usually I'm allowed to, that even for us, sometimes what we want to do is start out by saying, look at everything that's wrong with the Jews. Look at everything that's wrong with the Christians. Look at everything that's wrong with the Muslims. And we haven't even had a process of internal building ourselves, spending more time looking at what's wrong with the other uh, religion over there. And I, I almost wonder if some of us don't need to stay in that place of personal growth and development looking first at ourselves before we start spending so much time saying what's wrong with the Messianics or what's wrong with the Christians or what's wrong with the Jews or what's wrong with the Karaites or what's wrong with the Australians. You know, what process are we in? <laughs> it's the kangaroos. So, yeah, so I just wanted to <laughs> oh, say that I think Everybody this is really wants a interesting. Kangaroo deep down. You two might have something that you can True. pull out of your, your hat on this, but I, I think it's interesting that it isn't until they're crossing the land that they really get to do the kind of cleaning out of the others in well, terms of their you know what? You know what, Keith? I, I um, uh, just just quickly, uh, Yoel ben Shlomo and I have been uh, going through the book of Joshua. Shout out, uh, to Light Yoel. of the Prophets, Light of the Prophets, excellent series on on uh, Joshua. Finished. Yo, 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 and, uh, Yoel, and we uh, we did touch on, and I remember this verse, uh, uh, Joshua twenty three verse thirteen. Know for certain that Yehovah Yolikim will will no longer drive out these nations from before you, but they shall be snares and traps to you Come on. and scourges on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from this good land which Yehovah Yolikim has given you. And that brings us to the next verse. But first, Nehemiah, you were going to say something. Yeah, so, so uh, just to you know, reiterate or to kind of back up what Keith is saying, that's kind of, you know, there's a couple of verses in Deuteronomy that say that pretty explicitly. Yep. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 12. Um, and in the English, it is verse, and in the Hebrew, it's verse eight. It says, uh, uh, "It says you shall not, you shall not all do as we are doing here today. Every man doing whatever is right in his own eyes, for as yet you have not come to the rest and inheritance which Jehovah your God is giving you. But when you cross over the Jordan and dwell in the land which Jehovah your God is giving you to inherit, and He gives you the rest from all your enemies around about, so that you dwell in it, then there will be the place where Jehovah your God chooses to place His uh, name." Etc. So mm. what we have here is he's saying, look, you know, <laughs> you've had 40 years of grace. It's got to end. We're crossing mm. over. You know, I gave you 40 years to prepare. You got to stop doing what's right in your own eyes and start doing what is right in the creator's eyes. Mm. Amen. Amen. And now, sorry, I was just going to say before we go on, it is in, yes, it is in uh, uh, 12 earlier on, isn't it? From verse 2, I think. Uh, you shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations uh, which you dispossess, uh, they serve their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. And you shall destroy their altars and break their sacred pillars and burn their wooden images with fire. You shall cut down their carved images and their gods and destroy the names from that place. You shall not worship Yehovah your Elohim with such things. And I think it, it, it says something similar in, in chapter 18 of Deuteronomy, but we will get to that. We will get to that. But... The next verse, verse 56, moreover it shall be that I will do to you as I thought to do to them. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Chapter 34, and the Lord said unto Moses, command the Israelites. <laughs> no, I'm you just, just want to move on from that no, one. I'm telling you, that's a tough one. It is a tough one. That's a it tough is one. a tough one. But, it, but I guess, Nehemiah, do you have anything to add to that? I think it's pretty self-explanatory. I mean, here's is something I do want to talk about because you know somebody could look at this um, without the full context and say, you know, 
that God of the of Israel, he's a, he's a racist. He's telling you to wipe out those nations, to kill every last man, woman, and children, to replace the Israelite race with the Canaanite uh, or the Canaanite race with the Israelite race. And, um, and and I guess it could sound like that if you only read certain verses and not the broader context. But now we're going into chapter 34, and we find out something really cool that we haven't heard before, which is mm-hmm. in verse 19. Sorry to jump ahead to verse 19. We oh, hear the goodness. list of the of the princes of the 12 tribes. And the prince of the tribe of Judah is now Caleb ben Yifuneh, Caleb the son of Yifuneh. And we are told in other places that he's a Kenizzite which is one of the original Canaanite tribes. So on the one hand, we've got this commandment, wipe them out, they're idolaters. And the other hand, we've got, you know, we, what we see is that when one of them uh, turns from their idolatry, uh, idolatry and becomes uh, loyal to the God of Israel, to the one true God, to the creator of the universe, that not only is he accepted in Jehovah's mm. covenant, he could become one of the leader of the people. He's the leader of and I'm a little biased here, but he's the leader of the most important tribe, the tribe of Judah. And <laughs> spoken as a true Judah, right? Um, as a descent of King David, uh, I feel that way that Judah is the most important tribe. And, and who is the leader of our tribe? Before he wasn't a leader, he was a spy. Now, mm-hmm. I mean, he was kind of a leader, but he wasn't the leader. He wasn't the Nasi. Nasi is the prince. He is the prince. And, and maybe you could even say a, a picture of the future Messiah who will be a prince from the tribe of Judah. He is the prince of the tribe of Judah now in Numbers 34, verse 19. And he's not even a physical Israelite descent. He is, he's joined the people. He's joined himself to the Jehovah. I love the name of the God of Israel. And he is now not only one of the people, he is the leader of the people from that tribe. And, so, and, and I think that's important. So it's not a racial issue. Every one of those Canaanites had the opportunity to repent and turn to the God of Israel. And we have a few rare examples of people who did that. We've got the example of Rahab or Rahab in the book of Joshua. We've got a few mm-hmm. examples, handful, where people said, okay, I'm going to repent and I'm going to join the God of Israel. Most of them said, mm-hmm. we love our Canaanite gods. We're going to wipe you out and Baal will give us the power to wipe you out. And Ashtor and Easter will give us the power to wipe you out. And they were kind of disappointed because we won. Yeah. Amen. So just, just remind the listeners, if you would, Nehemiah, yeah. how, just, yeah. how did Caleb, uh, mm-hmm. in his, if you like, in his adoption, if you like, into yeah. Israel, how did he get allocated to the tribe of, of Judah? Um, well, we're not actually told that information, but uh, we, we don't know. It doesn't say. But what we it's do have is a reference. It is. Let's start with the facts. Genesis chapter 15, and, and I know we talked about this uh, in a previous portion, but I'll just quickly run through it. Uh, Genesis 15, uh, here God lists the different tribes. And this is significant, I think, for our portion because we've got the borders that are defined that God is giving Israel. Um, but then there's a broader border that's given in Genesis 15. Um, <clears throat> the borders here are for Israel at that time, but then there's borders that we can eventually grow into. It says, On the same day, Jehovah made a covenant with Abraham in verse 18, saying, To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. That's a pretty mm-hmm. significant border. Um, mm-hmm. the, and then he lists 10 tribes that live in that land. I believe it's 10. Uh, he says the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. That's mm-hmm. 10 different tribes that are living there at the time of Abraham. Now, later on, there's only seven tribes uh, because some of them left or they got uh, intermingled or whatever happened to them. But in any event, one of them is the Kenizzites, the Kenizzi. And we're told later on 
that in uh, a number of places, for example, Numbers 32, verse 12, it mentions Kaleb, the son of Yephunneh, the Kenizzite. And then Joshua 14, 6, Kaleb, the son of Yephunneh, the Kenizzite. And Joshua 14, 14, third witness, Kaleb, the son of Yephunneh, the Kenizzite. Three times he's called a Kenizzite. And uh, he, um, so in other words, he, he is what we might call a Gentile who has joined himself to the God of Israel. And... Um, you asked how did he become, you know, specifically connected to Judah, and I think the answer to that is something we can find in the book of Ezekiel, um, and that's specifically in Ezekiel 47, verses 22 to 23. It's not talking about Caleb. It's talking about the broader principle. I'll start in verse 21, and this is, yeah. I think, relevant because this is relevant to our Torah portion because in our Torah portion it talks about dividing up the land under Joshua, and here it's talking about dividing up the land under the Messiah in the future kingdom. It says, thus shall you divide, verse 21, thus shall you divide this land among yourselves according to the tribes of Israel. Then verse 22, it says, it shall be that you will divide it by lot as an inheritance for yourselves and for the strangers, say strangers, for the strangers who dwell among you and who bear children among you, they shall be to you as native born among the children of Israel. They shall have an inheritance with you among the tribes of Israel. Verse 23, and it shall be that in whatever tribe the stranger dwells, there you shall give him his inheritance says uh-huh. the Lord Yehovah. So presumably, we don't know for sure, but presumably he, you know, there were 12 different camps uh, surrounding the main, you know, the surrounding the tabernacle, 12 of these. Di- and uh-huh. so, you know, Caleb must have just planted his tent in the, in the tribe of Judah and yeah, he was a sure. Judah. So he had, he had mates in Judah. He was, he, he had his tent there. And so that's where he, that's where he ended up. Yeah. He, okay. he would walk out of his tent to, and say to the other people, good eye, Judah, good eye. So let me let me give it let me give a little 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 something about this that is that is Judah, interesting. Judah, Judah. Oi, oi, oi. Oi, oi, oi. And they so, say uh, and they and they would call him Caleb, they'd call him Colbo. <laughs> hey, g'day little doggy, how you going? <laughs> so before that uh verse, you know, and again it, it just speaks of this idea uh that there's going to be this appointing that's gonna take place. And I think we should put a little bit of context to it because okay, so we have we have Caleb and, and of course what Nehemiah has brought up is obviously really important and at the same time if you look at this it says and 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 it speaks here in verse number 17 after 16 mm-hmm. Yehovah said unto Moshe these are the names of the men who are to assign the land for you as an inheritance and then it says that the two men here specifically the high priest and Joshua mm-hmm. son of Nun mm-hmm. Eleazar uh, are going to be the ones that are going to do this and appoint one leader as, as Nehemiah said one prince from each tribe to help assign the land. So, uh, and I think, uh, let me think here if I'm thinking right, I think it's the word nachal. Let me just check here. Um, so in the English Bible, we use the word apportion for this word, um, for this word, the nachal. And uh, they use the word apportion for, I think it's six or seven times here. So, be, be, so, so why would you have Caleb be the one who would be the leader of the quote-unquote, as Nehemiah said, the most important tribe? And a pretty big, a pretty big portion, if, if I'm Amen. if I'm thinking right here, yeah. So so what did Caleb do? So and of course I got to tie this in, you know, for those that want to understand what Caleb did, let's go see what Caleb looked at and where he went. We're going to spy out the land. And what did Caleb do, Jono? He spied out the land. And so what was he? What 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 was his expertise in this area? You know, we didn't just pick some guy who's sitting on the side of the road who who was you know whatever. This is a guy who actually has experience in the land. So is there a connection with the fact that he's the one that's going to help make the apportion, uh, as, as I said in English, the apportion to, to, to apportion by lot 
but he's also one who knew how to walk. He had walked the land. He had, he'd been in there. He spied out the land. So he's not mm-hmm. some rookie who doesn't know anything. He can actually go in and say, here's, here's where this is and here's where that is. So I just wanted to bring that up, that there's, there's got to be there, – there seems to be a connection with the fact that it wasn't just you know he's a great warrior who went out and fought, but he also had some, some knowledge. And it's possible that these other men that are in here, though they weren't the ones that actually spied the land because we know that those, those guys didn't make it, but maybe they were also those that had information that was, that was given and passed down and mm-hmm. had some understanding of the land. Amen. Can I can I jump to uh you know we're I mean we're talking here I know it's a little off topic, but we brought this before but I, I want to bring it in this context Isaiah fifty six one of my favorite passages verse three and it's it's talking there it says neither let this I'm gonna read here here from the King James version you know I, I know people tra- I trash the version all the time to be honest with you but but you know <laughs> despite itself sometimes it can get it right um, even though sometimes it adds words like the old corn instead of just the grain. Um, mm-hmm. Neither let the son of the stranger that has joined himself to the Lord, and of course, Lord in caps in Hebrew is Yehovah. Neither let the son of the stranger that has joined himself to Yehovah speak, saying, Yehovah has utterly separated me from his people. So what does this mean? Here the prophet is speaking to Caleb. He's saying, Caleb, you're the son of the stranger that joined yourself to Yehovah. Do not say, Yehovah has utterly separated me from his people. Don't say mm-hmm. that, Caleb. And why don't say that? He jumps back at verse 6 to the son of the stranger. He says, and also Caleb, the son of the stranger, joins himself to Yehovah. Caleb, who has joined himself to serve Yehovah and to love the name of Yehovah, to be his servants, everyone that keeps the Sabbath from polluting it and taketh hold of my covenant, even them will I bring to my holy mountain. Caleb, you're going to come to the holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings or sacrifice shall be accepted upon my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people, but including you, Caleb. Thus says Yehovah, which gathereth the outcasts of Israel, saith, yet will I gather others, that's you, Caleb, to him, besides those that are gathered unto him. Come on with that, Amen. Caleb. Amen. 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 That's brilliant. Thanks for, thanks for highlighting that. Let me ask a question, because you jumped to uh, Genesis 15, uh, and we were looking at verse 18. That it is from the the river, the great the river from Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, yeah. and of course we have the Mediterranean, the Great Sea. How far east are we talking? How far east? Um, How well? It says, it says well. Okay, so first of all, the land that God gave uh, you know Abraham was um, west of the Jordan, west essentially west of the Jordan River. In other words, you follow the line of the Jordan River all the way up to the Euphrates, mm-hmm. and that includes a large chunk of Syria. And all of Lebanon, and um, a little bit of what today is Egypt. Um, I'd say about two thirds or so of the of the king, the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan, and uh, of course all of the, you know the what currently is the state of Israel. And um, now uh, what we have borders over here in in numbers is a much more um, limited area, and that's because you know he explains in another passage that look, I can't give you the whole land at once. Because it'll be too much. Wild animals will, will you know, you'll, you'll drive out the foreigners and then you'll have these empty cities that wild animals will take over. So he says, I'm going to give mm-hmm. it to you gradually. So basically what we're getting in the book of Numbers is the first installment, the first chunk. But there's much more uh, of the land that's, you know, awaiting us uh, from the Euphrates. Uh, you know, of course, once we have the agreement, the covenant that's made with the two and a half tribes for Transjordan, that also mm-hmm. includes, you know, a, lar- a significant amount of area um, in what is today the kingdom of Jordan and, and the occupied kingdom of uh, or republic of Syria, and um, you know those areas will eventually be re- liberated when the King Messiah comes to rule as king over Israel. He, you know, mm-hmm. those all those nations are going to be 
united into the kingdom of Israel. And um, it's, it's going to be part of the, the land of Israel. I mean, it's, th- those are part of the land of Israel. They're going to be liberated. Um, and may it be soon. May it be soon. Amen. And then Amen. The, uh, the Levites, once again, will be, as we read in, uh, uh, you made mention of Ezekiel, but it mentions, of course, again, uh, dedicated areas for the Levites. And here in chapter 35 is the cities for the Levites. Mm-hmm. Do you want to highlight, highlight something there? Who, me? <laughs> <laughs> as soon as, as, soon as I said right. that, I thought. You I should, well, shouldn't leave open-ended questions like that. No, no, you can't ask that question. That's where you're supposed to say this. Everyone that's been listening to Torah, what are you talking about? Listen, everybody that's listening to Torah Pros knows this. Every once in a while, Jonah's going to go, Keith, and then it's my turn. But if you generally say, do you have something to say, Nehemia thinks you're saying his name. You can't do that, if, if I say, If I say, Keith... Yes, that means it's your turn, but it's not necessarily. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to get a chance to talk. So, Keith, <laughs> do, do you do you have Amen. anything to say in regards to the first half of of uh, chapter thirty-five and in regards to the cities of the Levites? Well, all I have to say is that I just think it's amazing, and and I think this is really again. I I hate to keep bringing this up, but I think people really need to understand the significance of who these Levites are. These are servants that have been selected through the line of Aaron that are that have a job to do and he says because you've already got a job to do uh, you're not going to need to get another job I'm going to have this be your job and I'm going to take care of you in this way I'm going to give you land you're not going to have excuse me your own um, you're not going to have you know here's your portions you're going to go out and do this do rather this is going to be the area that separates you so you're not thinking about those things so you can go and do the things that to serve me in the tent of meeting etc mm-hmm. in the temple one of the things that I do think, and, and I'm just going to say this, is that um, we have to be very careful when we use that word, uh, especially from my tradition, when we use that word to say, as the Levites, here's what we, we require and here's what we, we need to get. Because, you know, I know a man, and he's, he's actually on your uh, radio show, um, who I believe as sure as Nehemiah uh, is uh, from the tribe of Judah, uh, Yoel is from the tribe of Levi, and mm-hmm. at least the best that he's, that he's aware and so it's it, it it is it is a really important thing to to understand that this reasoning the reasoning behind that is for the purpose of what the, what their job is now what we've done in the the Catholic Church and what we've done in the Protestant movement is said okay so we're going to now take the Levitical role including the the the, the, the Levitical benefit of the tithes and the offerings and and that's going to come to us and I, I just I still remember. Uh, the the first time that I understood this in its in its uh, in its depth of what it meant to be a, a Levite and where I realized that I was not I may be in the mm-hmm. role of trying to help people learn and to giving scripture and that sort of thing but I don't claim the Levitical bloodlines and and for the re- and the reason for that is because of holiness of that entire process and how they were set aside and how they were separated and without me knowing that I do I do Levite myself I do join myself mm-hmm. to as Nehemiah just spoke about in 56, but I don't claim that I'm on the, on, from that bloodline right. where I can handle. So, so Keith, so Keith, I have, a, I have a question. I have a question for Nehemiah in regards to you, Keith. As uh, the verse that, that Nehemiah has just, just read out in, in Isaiah 56, and with the analogy that we used in regards to Caleb, that he just set up his tent in, in, uh, in Judah, and, uh, and yeah. that's where he where he lodged. Now, Nehemiah, if Keith, when, when the Mashiach comes and everything is restored and Keith says, you know what, I want to hang out with Yoel and uh, I'm going to set up my tent here, does that mean that Keith can be, I mean, does he get grafted into, into Levi? Maybe, perhaps? Why not? 
I don't know. Why not? What it's Sega like. Kate. I mean, what, Listen, what it, you know, at least as far as inheriting, you know, land. Um, yeah, but, you know, frankly, if, if, you're, <laughs> if you want to be grafted <laughs> into the Levites, you're not going to get much land. Um, right. <laughs> well, you'll be in the city, right? Well, so, so let's talk about that. So they get the city, and then they get 2,000 cubits surrounding the city. And why do they get that? So that's what's called the – there's three areas. There's the city. Around the city for the first 2,000 cubits is called the Migrash. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I forget how they translate that in your English. But basically it's like the lots around the city. It's where the animals live. You know? And sure. so, look, people needed to, uh, to you know – they, didn't, they, they couldn't go to the They're going to have a place to skin their goats, right? I mean, come on. Exactly. And, you know, and, and turn their, their – um, you know, turn their kangaroos into shirts yeah. and whatever you guys koalas. do over there. You know, mm-hmm. koala, koala bears, little koala mittens. You know? yeah. So, um, <laughs> right. Not endorsing that. <laughs> so, <laughs> so anyway, so they've got 2,000 cubits surrounding the city for their animals. And then beyond that is the fields where they're actually growing the grain and the, you know, the wheat and the barley and stuff. And um, so they're, you know, basically the situation here is. They're not getting areas to grow their wheat and barley. That's for the other 12 tribes or the other 11 tribes, depending on how you count it. But they, but they need to have animals because you can't go to the local store and buy milk. If you want milk, you got to have a goat to, to milk. Amen. You know? And so, and so this, actually be, this actually becomes uh, uh, an important issue uh, in later Jewish tradition when they look at a, a kind of an obscure verse um, in the book of uh, Exodus, which, which I don't remember if we talked about or not, but let's just really quickly look at it. So it says there uh, in Exodus chapter 16, verse mm-hmm. 29, it's talking about how the people would, went out into the fields to collect the man or the mana. And then it says, um, you know, they went out on Shabbat. In response to that, God says, Sit each man in his place and let each man not go out of his place on the seventh day. Mm-hmm. So the rabbis came along uh, about 1,500 years after Moses and they said, okay, what does this mean? It's talking about going out into the fields. And we know the fields are 2,000 cubits outside the city. We know that from the book of Numbers. And they established the rule that you can't walk more than 2,000 cubits outside your city. Ah, so that's the Sabbath day walk, right? That's the Sabbath day's journey. Right. And in fact, when I grew up as an Orthodox Jew, that was the rule. You can walk through Chicago, where I grew up, 25 miles from north end to the south end of Chicago. No problem whatsoever. But if you walk 2,000 cubits into Evanston or into Skokie, then you violated this commandment of sit each man in his place. Do not go each man from his uh, house on the seventh, or it doesn't say house. Go eat, not each man from his ho- place on the seventh day. In other words, they understood correctly that in the context, it's talking about going out into the fields to collect the mana. So your place doesn't mean sit on your butt. It obviously can't mean that because, and I don't mean to be crude, um, people didn't have indoor plumbing. So <laughs> they, they couldn't literally stay in their tent. For 24 hours, that, that would have been pretty messy. Um, they had to go out outside to do their, their business. Sure. Um, but the point is that, um, that it, what he was telling them, they, this is what the rabbis understood, is don't go out into the field. And what's interesting is that the people who wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls had the, the, the same understanding as the rabbis, uh, except instead of it being 2,000 cubits, and I forget if they said 1,000 cubit or they had a different number, and they got that mm-hmm. s- a different number from the same passage we just read in Numbers, because there there's an issue about 1,000 cubits and 2,000 cubits. Um, so they took you know the one verse versus the other verse that the rabbis took. But the Sabbath day's journey, the, to this day in, in Orthodox Judaism, refers to not going more than 2,000 uh, cubits outside of the city. And what they've done is combine our verse and Numbers with this verse here in Exodus 16, 
and that's where they get that issue. Now, the way I look at it, and I could be wrong, maybe the rabbis and the, and the people who wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls were right. The way I look at it, and I think they were right in their context, what I do ask, though, is if I'm going to apply this to a modern context, what is the application? And to me, the application, because I'm not a farmer who goes out into his field, so that mm-hmm. doesn't really mean anything to me. So the way I think this applies for me um, is, is uh, you know, that, that what is my place of work? My place of work is, you know, the mall and, um, you know, the factory and, um, you know, the stores. And, and so, so I think for, for the modern person, that is our equivalent of going out into the fields to go to our places of business and work. Sure. And so I think yeah. that's what the Torah is telling us. Don't go to your place of business and work. And, you know, but I could be wrong. And, and, I, and I really do pray that Jehovah opens my eyes for me to see the truth. And if I find out I'm oh, wrong, goodness. I'll be so blessed because I'll have the truth. And maybe this is a good time for us to pray the prayer. Amen. That's, that's so an excellent, be excellent so be Maybe. Psalm 119, verse 18, and it says, Yehovah, Yehovah, thank you so much that we have the opportunity to do these, these Torah polls. I just want to take the opportunity to say, and I thank you for Nehemiah God, and I thank you for Keith Johnson. I thank you for the listeners that are so thirsty to know what it is that your Torah says. And Father, we pray that you will open our eyes, that we may see the wondrous things of your Torah. Amen. 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 Then Jehovah spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then, then you shall appoint the cities, the cities of refuge for you, that the manslayer who kills any person accidentally may flee there, and they shall be cities of ref- refuge for you, that the avenger may, uh, that the, the manslayer may not die until he stands I, I, I before the congregation you. in judgment. Does yours really say mm-hmm. manslayer? Is that what you got, Keith? I've, I've got manslayer. That's because yeah. no, mine says dragon, mine says dragon slayer. So I don't know. <laughs> someone comes to your town. I see here a uh, refuge to which a person who's killed someone accidentally may flee. Someone who's killed someone. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's just what so. It rather than a than a murderer, someone who's guilty of manslaughter, right? Well, no. So here, here's the point that um that we have this definition earlier in, in Exodus that uh, that if you if you kill someone intentionally, then you're uh, put on trial and you're executed. If you, till, if you accidentally kill someone, and, and somewhere in maybe it's one of the passages we read, um, it talks about, you know, for example, if you're swinging an axe and the head of the axe goes flying off and kills somebody, well, mm. then you're, you, you um, have the option of fleeing to the city of refuge. And what we're finding out here is that the, uh, the, what's called the Goel Hadam, the Redeemer of Blood, that's a kinsman of the person who was killed accidentally. Mm-hmm. He actually has the right to redeem the blood of his relative. And what that means is he can kill you if you're the one who accidentally killed him unless you go to the city of refuge. In the city of refuge, he has no right to touch you. Um, and there's these six cities of refuge. And the mm-hmm. person essentially is stuck in the city of refuge. Um, it says in verse uh, 25, he shall dwell in it until the death of the high priest um, who uh, who anointed him with oil, the holy oil. So uh, we've got the high priest who's anointed with holy oil. Until he dies, the person is stuck in the city of refuge. And that could be, you know, that could be 60 years. That could be, you know, one day. I mean, you know, you might accidentally mm-hmm. murder someone and then the next day he, or kill someone, and the next day he, uh, the high priest dies. Um, so, so hang on, hang on. So in verse 28 kind of- it says, but after the death of the high priest, the manslayer may return to the land of his position. Now, am I to understand yeah. then that the that the avenger, the 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 the, the kinsman, the, the one who has the right to, to uh, avenge the blood of his of his relative, he has no right now because the high priest has died. Right, that's correct. 
Okay. In other words, the guy's right. done his term of service. The Avenger of Blood can't touch him. And if he does, wow. it's murder. So he's it's under house like arrest. And- yeah, it's almost like there's a system of like kind of like bounty hunters, <laughs> except yeah. they're you know they're, kin- they're kinsmen, and um, it, it's an interesting you know setup. But you know if you look in the in the um, I know in the Bedouin culture, they have a system which is you know compared to this quite barbaric. In their system, if you, even if you, in fact there was a case in Jerusalem that one of the suburbs of Jerusalem, which is a, an Arab actually a Palestinian city, it's outside Jerusalem, ruled by the Palestinians. Uh, mm-hmm. The bus driver was in a, a bus accident, and some some children. He was a school bus, and some children were killed. This was in a place called Anata, and um, and the Avenger of Blood said, "Okay, I, I can kill the bus driver." And then you know the authorities, the Palestinian authorities, stepped in and said, "Okay, you know we don't want you to kill the bus driver. Will you take a monetary monetary compensation instead?" <laughs> and mm-hmm. he had to pay a monetary compensation. In in the you know to the Avenger wow. of Blood, basically the same thing. Now here's the thing: in in some of the you know the Bedouin cultures, you, there is no option of a monetary compensation, and there's a requirement of the Avenger of Blood to come and kill the you know the bus driver, and uh, and or whoever you know commits the act, and and then you end up with a situation where um, now the um, the relative of the of the pers- of the bus driver has to kill. The either the Avenger of Blood or his family, and you end up with these blood feuds that last for generations. I mean, literally, they will go back and forth with these blood vendettas, generation after generation. Yes, fifteen generations ago, my mm. cousin Ahmed uh, accidentally killed, you know, Abu Musa, and you know, and and then you know, so and so killed him, and, and they'll go back and forth. And so, what the Torah is setting here is a limit. You know, okay, we understand there's this, you know, there's this, um, there's this concept. Of taking uh, uh, of, of redeeming the blood, it's what's actually called a redeemer of blood, but it has a limitation. It's the lifespan of the of the of the kohen gadol of the high priest, and even in that time, there are these cities of refuge. You just can't go and kill someone just because you want to, or you know you have you know you feel this familial obligation to, if he if he puts himself under this sort of house arrest in the city of refuge. Mm-hmm. Okay, excellent. Thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Keith, in chapter 27, if I remember correctly, we were talking about, uh, just fill me in, the, the scenario of chapter 27, there was the daughters of Zelophehad. Is that his name? Zelophehad. Thank you. Zelophehad. That'll do. And uh, now he had, he had daughters, right? Now, what, what were their complaint? What was their, what was their concern? So they were saying to themselves, listen, we're daughters. We don't have any, uh, we don't have any land that's being given to us. And if I remember right, it was, uh, let's see, yep, chapter 27. Um, and they said, our father died in the desert. He is not any uh, among, uh, he was not among the followers of Korah. And uh, why should our father's name disappear from the clan? Because he had no son. Give us property among our fathers. And, of course, Moses did a really wise thing. He went and checked with Yehovah about that. So now we're getting up to that in chapter 36. And, this is, and, and so the question then becomes, what happens when they get married, right? Because if they've mm-hmm. inherited the land, they now, I guess, in a sense, they hold the deed. Is that fair to say? What happens when they get married? And this, I mean, this is really what... Now, by the way, hey, guys, this is the last chapter of Numbers. We've reached no, it last... Can't be. It can't be. Oh, no, it can't my goodness. Be. We're knocking on the door of Deuteronomy almost. But before we even talk oh, about it, that, what, happens, what happens when they get married? Keith, do you have I'm any sorry. idea? I mean, we... Oh, did, you, did you say my name? <laughs> What are you talking about? If they own it and they get married, then their husband owns it too. (laughs) 
All right. Lama Lord. Well, I, I think <laughs> the not? issue here Lama is that all in, all inheritance and tribal affiliation in Scripture um, goes according to the man. And, and let me point that out that like if you ask a modern Orthodox Jew. Um, is someone Jewish, you know, what makes somebody Jewish? They'll say, well, if their mother is Jewish. But that's actually a very recent innovation. Uh, it only goes back a few hundred years. And in ancient Judaism and in the Bible, it went by the father. So if your father, for example, was from the tribe of Judah, and um, your mother was from the tribe of, I don't know, um, <clears throat> Issachar, Issachar, so you were a Judah, you were an Issacharite, you were from Judah. And the situation here is, so you've got these daughters who are the daughters of Slavchad, and they get the land. And the fear is that, okay, they're going to now marry someone from Judah, and then their children will be Judahites. And the land is going to pass over to the tribe of Judah. And, you know, and, and, and we're going to lose land out of the tribe of, of uh, you know, of Joseph in this context. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, so, you know, so that's the concern there. And... Um, you know, and, and so what they're so the ruling that's laid out is if they want to inherit the land, they've got to marry someone from their tribe. Now, here's something really weird I once heard from someone who, who wasn't Jewish, and I don't know where he got this, but he thought that uh, that the twelve tribes of Israel could only marry amongst themselves. Meaning, if you were from Issachar, you could only marry someone from Issachar. If you were a Levite, you could only marry a Levite. Um, I don't know where they got that. That's utter nonsense. The only context in which that becomes an issue is if there's a girl who inherits land from her right. father because the father had no brothers. And then if she wants to keep the land, she's got to marry within her tribe. If she wants to marry outside and her tribe, she forfeits the land. And Jono, mm -hmm. that's where verse 12 is on the keep reading. So, so what does verse 12 say? Okay, so verse 12. They were married into the families of the children of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, and their inheritance remains in the tribe of their father's family. Beautiful, there it is. Mm -hmm. So, uh, in other words, if they did marry outside, uh, if they married into Judah, then the land would, would then follow on into Judah. Mm -hmm. So, now, let, let me just jump off the topic onto something that you happened to mention, Nehemiah. The, yeah. the, uh, the idea is, and, and I hear it so often, uh, in fact, when I visited a, a synagogue recently, um, there were people on a number of occasions saying, uh, so your 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 you know your mother is Jewish? I said no, they're not. Oh, is 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 your is your wife's mother Jewish? No, no, she's not. And you kind of feel, um, and I know a lot of people have encountered this. They feel like second rate somehow because they don't they don't fit into that. But that, like you say, that's that's uh, that's only new in the last couple of hundred years, right? Um, well, I mean, look, so, so now are you talking about someone whose father's Jewish but whose mother isn't? Is that what you're talking about? Someone's, someone whose father is Jewish. Right. I mean, so look, that that's, you know, a rabbinical tradition, and it's a rabbinical tradition that doesn't go back even that far. It's only a few hundred years old, and um, not all Jews accept that. Karaite Jews definitely don't accept that. We say that inheritance that uh, is based on the father, just like in Scripture. So if your father is Jewish, then you're Jewish. And um, and I know that Reformed Jews say the same thing because they say, look, in, in Jewish history, it was never the case that, that it was only by the, the mother. If your father's Jewish, you're Jewish. So there I've got to give, you know, and, and you know, people like to knock the Reformed Jews. And I want to give them credit here in that in this instance, they're actually more strictly biblical than the Orthodox. The Orthodox are the ones who have gone ultra liberal and changed scripture. And the Reformed Jews are saying, yeah, the Bible says if your father's Jewish, then you're, if your father is Israelite, you're an Israelite. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and, and that's biblically correct. So here's what I want to point out, that I want to say something even more radical, Jono. 
you know, when you're saying that somebody whose father is Jewish and mother isn't, that they feel like they're left out, and that, you know, that, that is certainly the position of the Orthodox. It's not biblical. It's clearly not biblical. This passage makes it ultra clear. Um, many other passages make it very clear. But I want to say something even more radical, and this goes back to Isaiah 56, and, and I read mm-hmm. it before. I want, to, I want to read it again. I want to read it directly from the Hebrew. It says, literally, Let not the son of the Gentile who joins himself to Yehovah say, Yehovah has surely separated me from his people. So what is he not supposed to say? He's not supposed to come into the synagogue when, and I'm not talking about you because you come from Jew, Jews on your father's side. I'm talking about Keith, who has shaken the family tree and no Jew has fallen out. His natural inclination is well to say, look, the Jews don't accept me. I'm not really part of Yehovah's people. Not that people, that's the special people. I'm, I'm separate from them. I have a, I've joined the God of Israel, but I'm not really part of the chosen people of Yehovah. I'm not part of his people. And he's saying here to those people, the son of the Gentile joins himself to Yehovah, must not say Yehovah has surely separated me from his people. And in the, I'm going to read it again. And the son of the Gentile joins himself to Yehovah to serve him. Say serve him. Serve him. Amen. And to love the name of Yehovah. Say love the name. Love the name of Yehovah. Amen. To be, you guys are not a good audience. You're, you, no, we're working work with me here. <laughs> to be his servants, all those who keep the Shabbat from desecrating it and grab hold of my covenant. Those Rip people, the covenant. I, I will be, uh, and, and that's actually an important point. That Hebrew word, lachzik, in biblical Hebrew, modern Hebrew, it means to hold on. In biblical Hebrew, it means to grab hold. They're grabbing hold of the covenant. I will bring them to my holy mountain, make them rejoice in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and uh, peace offerings shall be accepted upon my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer only for the Jews. No, that's not what it says. No. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Can I get an amen? Amen. 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 Thank you. Thank you, Nehemiah. Keith, can you read out the final verse of Numbers for me, please, my friend? I, I really would like to do that. I just want to say that uh, what is interesting is that you might, you might have the reform saying that it isn't uh, according to the mom, it's according to the dad. And you might have the Karite saying, no, it's not according to the mom, it's according to the dad. But let me tell you where the authority is right is, is, is at right now. Um, so, Jono, if, for example, you decided that you you know you found out okay you you find out that your father on your father's side there's a uh, jewish blood and you apply and say okay i want to make aliyah i'm going to go over to J- jerusalem i'm going to go to israel and and that's going to be my that's going to be my connection mm-hmm. to the god of israel well it, you can go to the reform all you want and you can go to the to the karaites if you want to if um, specifically if you want to say as it pertains to your your line I'm not mm-hmm. talking about conversion now i'm talking about your your bloodline and and if you go into israel right now uh, the Orthodox are, are are running the show, and so they say it's got to be the mama. Actually, if it ain't not, the mama, that's, that's well, I'm, actually I'm, not true. Okay, no, that's factually I'm, I'm, untrue. In fact, okay. so, to, so to make it clear, to, make, to I mean, here we're talking about Israeli law, not scripture. But under Israeli right. law, you need to have one Jewish grandparent, and that could be Jewish your mother's uh, mother. It could be your father's father, and the Orthodox will, you know, they might not like it, but if you've got a father's father who's Jewish, you can make Aliyah. You can immigrate to Israel as a full citizen. So, well, then so it's actually go, not then. the Orthodox so, running the show. Okay, so then that's even better. So then, so then it isn't anything to do with the mother. So then, so then, what 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 is the purpose of them making this rule in the last couple hundred actually, years? Actually, sorry, hang on, wait, Keith. I I would challenge what what Nehemia said and just just make it a little bit more complicated because uh, let's say that the father's father, that the grandfather, okay, yeah. uh, he is Jewish because his father is Jewish, but his mother wasn't. Well, so then it comes down to you know you're dealing. 
and he's falling and off the chair. Ladies he's falling off the chair. <laughs> falling off laughing. Rolling on the floor laughing out loud. No, um, no, that, then it actually, what, what you're dealing with then, Jonah, at that point is um, bureaucratic issues. Because ultimately, you want to immigrate to a country, you're dealing with a, a political bureaucracy, and the bureaucracy will say, okay, your grandfather's Jewish, prove it through documentation. And that documentation can, you know, take all kinds of forms. Um, for one of the most common ones is that, you, I mean, the, the best one they want is that you have a ketubah, a marriage contract, uh, between your grandfather and your grandmother. Now, a lot of people don't have that. Um, uh, so another thing that you can show is that your grandfather or grandmother, uh, any one of the four of them, is buried in a Jewish cemetery, for example. Um, you know, so, so, so it's, it's is, not, know, it's very, this yeah, is important. It's so I want to ask a question, but this is, so then, this is bureaucracy, you know, what, so, yeah. so then what, so then what is the, what is the purpose in of the fact that you said the last couple hundred years they've, they've dealt oh, with this issue of it so, going through so, the mother. So the, so the, so the significance is if you want to be married by an Orthodox rabbi, it, you know, to someone who is, you know, Orthodox, then you're going to have to show that you're Jewish on your mother's side. You know, ah, uh, that's it. So it's marriage. You know, so. Right, it's for marriage in the Orthodox Jewish community. Exactly. There it is. Okay. Okay. All so, right. Jono, you're in. You, you you reckon on me? I you know what? I think it's a little bit harder than that. Um, I <laughs> well, have if, to you have... Can, if you can show the documentation, then you got no problem. But it, like you for know, example, it's a, it's when interesting... I made a, when, when I made Aliyah, what I brought into the Aliyah office and over twenty or nearly twenty years ago was um, a photocopy or maybe the original actually of my mother's ketubah, uh, my mother's mm-hmm. marriage contract with my father. And, you know, they looked at it and they sent it to some kind of agency to be verified. And they said, okay, you're, if your parents had a ketubah, they must be Jewish and you can make Aliyah. And, you know, mm. not everybody has that, like I said. Um, but, you know, there, there, there is usually documentation. And sometimes there's not. A lot of times there's not. A lot of times there's people in Europe who, the, you know, the documents were burned. You know, half of Europe mm. was burned in the mm. Holocaust and they don't True. have the document. It happened. True. Okay. There it is. So the Orthodox aren't running the uh, aren't running who comes in for Aliyah. It's 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 completely disconnected. Well, they, they want to run it, but they uh, well no, they've got some influence, but they don't actually run it. They they wish they ran it. Uh-huh. They got you. They, go. they do have influence though. I'll tell now you what, the last verse. When we're over there, Keith, we're going to be twisting some arms. Oh, we're twisting arms, man. (laughs) All right. So it says, the last verse says, These are the commands and regulations Yehovah gave through Moses to the Israelites on the plains of Moab by the the Jordan across from Jericho. And let me just tell you, it's amazing. And I want to say this again. This this has probably been the thing that's changed my entire view of the Bible more than anything else. And I want people to consider this any way that you can. And it certainly doesn't need to be with us. Any, any, Any opportunity that you have. To get to the land and to actually stand in, in places where when you're reading it, you can say we're actually standing in place. Now, there are many places, as Nehemiah mentioned earlier, that came through revelation and dream through uh, for the Christian tradition from from Helena. But there are so many more places that we actually do have authentic places that we can actually stand and go to that are biblical based places and so that when you open up the scriptures and you're reading about Jericho and to be in Jericho and and even though some people say don't go to Jericho I say go to Jericho but the list goes on and on and on and on and these are places that exist right now so it's really a very very powerful powerful experience to be there especially when you can be with a guy like Hemia who's a walking encyclopedia and uh, and a walking map I mean this guy can he can look at a stone and say this stone is from such and such a year and such and such a period and this came from so and so place so it really is an amazing I'm not amazing sure you could really date stones but we, we yeah. get the sentiment <laughs> yeah <laughs> okay sorry about that maybe pottery 
<laughs> to be there with Keith Johnson and Nehemiah Gordon and myself in my kangaroo underwear. It's happening in uh, late February, early March. Dates will be you up on the is. website. Here's hallowednames.com. Looking Absolutely. forward to seeing you there. Thank you, Keith Johnson and Nehemiah Gordon. You've been listening to Torah Pearls on Truth To You Radio, where you can freely download this and other Torah Pearls programs at truthtoyou.org. That's truth number two, letter U.org. And next week, oh my goodness, we're in Deuteronomy. Hey! Devarim, uh, Deuteronomy 1, verse 1 to uh, 3, verse 22. And until then, dear listeners, be blessed and be set apart by the truth of our Father's word. Shalom. All right. Hallelujah.